Spread the love with WMFA merch, items designed to spark creative vibes for you and the artists in your life. Shop at WMFAPodcast.com slash merch. That's WMFAPodcast.com slash M-E-R-C-H. Welcome to WMFA, a podcast about why and how we write. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm speaking with C. Pam Zhang, whose debut novel, How Much of These Hills is Gold, is out now from Riverhead Books. Born in Beijing, but mostly an artifact of the United States, Pam has lived in 13 cities across four countries and is still looking for home. She currently lives in San Francisco. There's always the question of who a book is written for. And in this case, it definitely wasn't written for the reader. And it particularly wasn't written for a white American audience. I really think in some way I wrote it for the family within the book. And by extension, sort of like for a lot of Asian immigrants, How Much of These Hills is Gold is one of the most exciting debuts I've read in a long time, propelled by the shimmering originality of Pam's prose and the fierce intelligence of the narrative she's created. The novel follows siblings Lucy and Sam, the 12- and 11-year-old children of Chinese immigrants, as they go on a quest to bury their father, Ba, a failed prospector and coal miner. Their mother is gone, but she has taught them what they need for this ritual, two silver dollars to place over the dead's eyes. And so they set out, Ba's corpse in tow. As the novel traces Lucy and Sam's lives, it reimagines and reassembles conventional myths of the American West. Pam tells both an intimate family tale and a larger narrative about a country built by people like Ba who were never allowed to claim it as their own. And yet, Lucy and Sam do claim America. They were born here and feel little for the place their parents talked to them about and wish to return to someday. It's a brilliant authorial choice, allowing Pam to examine concepts of home, belonging, and family from the inside out and the outside in. In this conversation, we talk about the work of twinning the intimate with the epic and about the currency of choice, hope, and self-preservation that the novel's characters trade in. We also talk about how Pam employed the richness of language to various effects, from the visceral imagery and symbols that carry throughout to her intentional and deliberate use of Mandarin. You can hear a bonus segment from our conversation in which we discuss in more depth Pam's perspective on writing a novel about an immigrant experience by joining the WMFA Patreon community at patreon.com slash WMFA podcast and pledging just $2 a month. Well, first of all, I wanted to congratulate you on just like what an actually gorgeous object this is. And even the the ARC has these like beautiful gold gilded pages that were such a pleasure um, to hold. So congratulations on on writing a stunning book and then and then having such a such a stunning object translated. Thank you. I think the stunning object part all the credit should be given to the actual designers of the book. I feel like in that case, I just lucked into it. I mean, really, this is, it's so stunning. I, I, I hope it doesn't sound a little bit glib that I start talking about how beautiful the pages are, but it, it really is a, a really, truly incredible book. And um, the place where I would love to start a conversation is, you know, I also, as a writer, the thing that I keep coming back to is this, this intersection of place and identity. And that's something you know, that that feels to me very much at the heart of the story and this idea of kind of where 
where is home and what makes you feel home and what is your relationship to a home that you've maybe never, you know, an ancestral home that you maybe have no memory or actual lived experience of. And and so I wonder if we could just open up by you talking a little bit about what as a writer is is compelling for you in those in those ideas. For me as a writer, I find home fascinating because its definition is so very different for everyone. In fact, I had a little media pre, pre-release party of this book that I shared with another dear friend of mine who's a writer named Brandon Taylor. And it's sort of like the party question for all the guests was, what defines home for you? And the answers were so wild. They ranged so, so broadly, um, you know, everything from people saying like a porch or a type of food to, I think my answer was uh, one's worst behavior. <laughs> <laughs> and I just think home is like so telling and fascinating because it really helps shape who people are. Yeah, and I love that idea. I, I lo- your answer is very interesting because it turns for me what what that makes me think of as home is this place that is like the thing that's unescapable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think just for me personally, because my family moved a- around a lot as a child home has always been less rooted in a particular physical landscape than in a feeling, perhaps, um, a feeling of belonging or the ability to be completely oneself. And in some ways, my physical ideas of home are sort of a Frankenstein of things that I choose to latch on to. I love the idea of thinking of, of this book and Brandon's real life kind of in, in companionship and in conversation because they, they do both kind of come at that question of how do you, how do, how does a person behave in a space that isn't hospitable to them? Right. Yes. I love that. Um, can you talk a little bit about sort of where, where the germ of this book came from? You know, how long have you been working on it? I always like to know kind of the first, the first kernels. So this book first began when I was actually living quite far away from the place that I would now define, I guess, as home, which is um, Northern California. I've spent the largest part of my life here, though I wasn't born here. But at the time that I wrote the book, I was living in Bangkok. I was taking this sort of gap year where I had been laid off from my job at a tech startup and really wanted to reevaluate everything I was doing. The book began when... I woke up one morning and I had this first line in my head. I had some images I wanted to pursue and I just wrote. And that was a short story at first. All my short stories tend to start that way. And then I put the short story away. I was like, cool, I'm done with this. I never have to think it again. And the book just like kept annoying me, honestly. The characters kept popping up in my head. I kept wondering what they were doing. Um, And I really put off writing the first draft of the full novel for as long as I could, because God knows no one should want to write a novel. It is such (laughs) it is such a backbreaking endeavor. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so I really didn't sit down to write that first draft until all these thoughts had kind of built up this enormous pressure in my head. Um, So by the time I sat down and committed words to the page again. I knew where the novel would begin. I knew where it would end. I had sort of conceived of the, not just the landscape and the setting, but the atmosphere and the feeling of it. Um, I knew major milestones. And so when I wrote that first draft, it came out of me very quickly. um, And it really felt more like I was channeling something. So to go back to your question of home, I think that, you know, the first impulse I was like, oh, it just came out of me. And 
I can't explain why, but when I reflect on it, I'm sure it came about because I was living so far away from Northern mm -hmm. California and that place still kind of had its claws in me and that connection to the landscape here really inflected everything about the book. Yeah, yeah, I love I love that story. I love that answer and and that that resonates really deeply with me as well as a writer and you know a lot of my writing um and the focus of the novel that I'm working on I'm from West Virginia and I was raised in Appalachia and and but I I I left kind of as fast as I could and then when I left I was I became I realized just sort of how deep the claws were. Um, mm. and, I, and I do think that there's something incredibly powerful and, and something that I'm very interested in too is like also I think kind of necessary that remove and sort of like what what does that mean about your relationship to a place when like you you're kind of obsessed with examining it um, or and kind of broadening place to mean like a concept of a place you know like home but like when you're kind of obsessed with examining it but you don't really want to be there or be there in quite the the same way um, in that moment I think it's a really interesting kind of conflict the distance is absolutely necessary. Um, you know, what's really funny is at the time that I was living in Bangkok, writing a book that was largely inspired by the landscape of California, uh, my roommate at the time was this other writer, a friend of mine named Mai Nardone, mm -hmm. who was prior to then had been living in California writing about Thailand. Oh, wow. So I think there is something there. Um, and I think you do need that remove from the place that is inspiring your writing because Otherwise, it's too constraining, right? You need some space between the place and your imagining of the place in order to let a book roam free. Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to go back because I'm, I'm curious uh, when you said you woke up with that first line. Is it the first line that currently is the opening? Yes, the first line has remained the same. Okay, which for folks who haven't read it yet, which you absolutely should, is Ba dies in the night, prompting them to seek two silver dollars. Um, and and what's interesting, just as a personal note, when I when I was reading the note that I made after that um, was no time for grief. And then, but then of course I learned that like the grieving process is, is why they're seeking the silver dollars. And so actually like the ritual is is the most important thing. Oh, that's a fascinating observation. I would agree with that because um, I was just mulling this over for a different interview recently where, yeah, it it has to start off for me um, with this very speedy quest narrative almost because the, the two children in the book are trying desperately to survive. So there is no time for grief, but that doesn't mean that they can cast grief aside because it comes back at them in very vicious ways later on. Yeah, yeah. I, and I would really love for you to talk a little bit about something that I think the novel does beautifully well in, in all of these tiny, lovely ways is the way that children um, sort of reflect and refract both of their parents in different ways. And, and I think the way that Ba and Ma kind of permeate Sam and Lucy in, in different ways across the book was so fascinating to behold. And I, and I, and I guess, you know, you saying that like you didn't write the draft until you kind of were, were immersed in, in the story. So I'm guessing that a lot of it was about that and how these, how the, everything from mannerisms to motivations and, but the, the four of them in relationship and in relationship as individuals was such a fascinating part of this book to me. When I started writing, I was very deeply interested in this idea of, of intergenerational trauma particularly as it pertains to immigrant families, where one of the most mm. 
and now I'm speaking a little bit personally, one of the most difficult parts of reconciling with that is that you can't. Some of the trauma is rooted in these deeply held family secrets in these foundational sources of shame. And I do think that when there is mystery and opacity around a thing, it, it becomes even more consuming, right? Um, if you are given a complete answer, one that is fulfilling in some way, I think you can then walk away mm -hmm. from it. And so I do think that's core to why Ma and Ma appear so frequently in the children's lives in this book, even many years later. And it's because both of those parents were ripped away from the children very early on. And so there are so many questions that cannot be answered. Something that, that really struck me that kind of ties up everything we've been talking about so far in, ter in terms of thinking about conceptions of home and thinking about these familiar relationships and is, you know, the, the parents are kind of moving in the, in the early part of the book, like their, their primary motivation is pretty much to, to be able to, to go back to where they came from. And then when they're telling the kids this, the kids are just kind of like that. What, what is that? Like what, you know, they, they, they feel so rooted in this place, even though they kind of don't have the intellectual distance that the parents have to see that they're not really rooted there at all. And then thinking about like, how does a parent navigate that emotional conflict? Yeah, I do think at some point, probably I'm not a parent myself, but I do think at some point parents probably have to reconcile with the fact that their children are completely independent beings with strange thoughts and lives and motivations. <laughs> but on the flip side, as a child, you realize that about your parents at some point too, and it is absolutely shocking, right? Right, right. <laughs> I think it is so astonishing that moment in, in your consciousness when you realize that not only do your parents have thoughts and feelings that are separate from your own and sometimes counter to your own, but that they have also lived lives before you and that they may not be completely readable to you ever because you'll never access that part of them. I'm curious about Ma and I wondered how you how you think about her decision to leave and and whether you think it was kind of rooted in in shame and feeling like sh that leaving was actually doing the best for the family or or if it was more this kind of very self-focused survival instinct i definitely don't see ma's action as completely selfish or morally suspect in any way i think that she had to make a really difficult decision and she was realizing that Ba and sort of like the the dream that he had created for this family, this dream of blindly pursuing the idea of gold and fortune was toxic. Mm -hmm. And she knew she had to remove herself from that. And she does think about taking the children with her. But then she has that moment where she realizes that the children feel no connection to her homeland at all. And that's when she makes the decision that perhaps they would actually be happier if she she left them behind. And I think stepping back for a moment, one of the reasons I don't think of Ma's choice as, as a bad one or a villainous one is because one theme I was interested in exploring in this book was how sometimes there are no good choices, particularly when you are part of a marginalized population that is trying its very best to scrape out any kind of living right. in a dominant society, in this case, a white society um, that doesn't want you there, that doesn't want to make space for you there. Um, so like Ma makes all these nuanced, complex and potentially problematic decisions, but so does Lucy and so does Sam and so does Ba. I really hope that the reader understands that the blame 
in each case does not lie on the individual, but it lies actually on the society that forces them into these corners. Yeah, yeah, I think that absolutely comes through. And a, a, a different note that I made to myself later on in the process when Lucy, you know, when when she kind of shows off that piece of gold that, you know, sort of kickstarts all these other events, um, how there's there's just no margin for error. You know, even if you did everything perfectly, it still wouldn't matter. And so then, yeah, Ma's clarity to see this dream for what it was and and save herself while she could takes on a, a very different light for sure. Yeah, absolutely. The margin for error thing is such an important fact to note. Um, and I think that also, I'm just fascinated in general by literature, media that allows women to make decisions for themselves. Yeah. You know, I, like everyone else, love the term art monster that I think was coined in Jenny Offal's Department of Speculation. Absolutely. And yeah, I do think that like if Ma were living in the modern age under a different type of circumstances, maybe she would be an art monster or another type of monster in that way. Right. Oh, totally. I love that so much. Yeah. Um can we talk a little bit about gender and gender performance in this book? Because it's such a powerful part of it. And can you talk about sort of how that how that came out? I love that you use the word gender performance. I think that up until now, I've been saying gender presentation, but performance is actually far more apt for a lot of the characters in the book. Mm. So yes, I'm deeply fascinated by gender performance and how it can be a means to power. But in this case, I mean power in a very particular way. I mean, power as you can sort of snatch it for yourself in a situation in which you are not given very much at all. So I think in an ideal world, all women could be perfect feminists, right? Be morally impeachable in everything they say and do and how they present themselves. But in a realistic world, sometimes you have to make calculations in order to give yourself a little bit of power or a little bit of wiggle room or to open up a few choices for yourself. And I think of this absolutely false narrative that certain bad men love to get behind, which is that, oh, you know, because women sometimes get drink spot for them or they get doors opened for them. Look at them. They're getting so many more advantages. How can they complain that they're not equal? And of course, this is like ridiculous because women would rather just have pay parity than to have a door open for them once in a while. Mm -hmm. But there is something in that, in that women sometimes do have certain modes of, I'll call it soft power. Right. And many of the female characters in this book are aware of that soft power and learn how to use it because they have no other means. So in the case of Ma, she does use her sexuality to do things like get small discounts on the food she's buying for her deeply impoverished and starving family. And you could condemn her for it, but it's also a forced choice she has to make in one of the few choices she has. Um, and the more extreme example, of course, is the example of Sam, who decides to put aside any presentation of femininity at all and chooses to live out life as a man who today maybe Sam would be a transgender man. Mm-hmm. And Part of that, of course, is that's just natural to Sam, and that is what what Sam has always identified as. But part of that is that Sam is a canny player in this world in fees from a very young age. How many more advantages boys are given? Right, absolutely. And it's working on this micro level, even within the family dynamic for her to reinforce that. Right. Another thing that I, I really loved, and I was really interested to hear what you had to say about it, 
So this is kind of a like comment question, which I know is the worst kind of question. To get. <laughs> um, there's so much that's so visceral. And, you know, like there's that great moment where Ma is eating dirt and eating, you know, and, and kind of grinding up all of this other matter that's in the ground and, and even just the gold itself. And, you know, it's a very, it's a very physical book. It's a book that you, I think, feel like very close to the bone. And I would just, if, if you have anything to say about that as kind of a decision in your drafting process, I would be really curious how that developed and what, what it kind of signifies for you. Yeah, thank you for asking that question. I think physicality is a really important form of expression for these characters because so much of their lives, emotional lives, are unspoken and repressed. And even to circle back to something we talked about earlier, right, these two children the book has to sort of start off with a bang because these two children are immediately in fight or flight mode. They're in survival mode. They don't have time to sit down and grieve or dwell. And so I was really interested in how these characters would express themselves through their actions, through facts of the body, rather than through dialogue. These aren't really characters that speak very honestly to each other most of the time. Right. And then also selfishly as a writer from a craft perspective, and this says a lot more about my strengths and weaknesses um, than about anyone else's. I think that when I myself sit down and try to write a long scene with a lot of dialogue, I quickly get bored of what I write, I'm writing. Mm. Maybe I'm just not that good at dialogue. <laughs> and I think you're pretty good at dialogue. I don't think you need to worry about that. <laughs> but that's, that's the way I feel, right? I'm like, oh, no, there's like some energy that's seeping out of the prose for me if there's too mm. much dialogue. And I'm so much more deeply fascinated by what can happen on the page when characters start moving and stop talking. Mm-hmm. Well, and especially, you know, as, as you referenced just a moment ago, like the, these characters don't have a lot of options for expression or for power, you know, which overlap obviously quite a bit except kind of for their bodies, even going back to the idea of sexuality and using it as a soft power to kind of get what you want. You know, you do need to, and the work is very physical, you know, it it all kind of comes back to the body in a way that, you know, that especially like later in the book when we get to, you know, characters like Lucy um, and sort of that, that level of the society, you know, where it's just not, it's just not the same. There's no engagement physically in those same ways. Um, you mentioned uh, playing to your strengths and your weaknesses. Um, can we talk a little bit about your writing process and just sort of what uh, what, a, what a day is like for you when you're sitting down to write? Well, a day actually, a day is usually me lying down or reclining to write. <laughs> if I'm to be totally honest, uh, I think that valid or not, the way I got to that is that even sitting up requires the modicum of energy. I'm like, no, I want absolutely every particle of energy in my body right now to be channeled towards writing. Uh, Mm. So I don't know. I think um, a writing day often starts with me reading a little bit of what I've written the day before, because I do believe it's really important to capture the sonic quality, the atmosphere, the world that that you're entering. And so rereading what I've written is less a matter of like remembering what what plot or what action unfolded and more of getting into that mood and headspace. And then in general, I'm just like a big fan lately of writing as poorly as you need to write. 
to get words on the page. Mm. It is so hard. It is so hard to like go kill your inner editor, right? God, it's so hard. <laughs> what has gotten you to that place where you can just be like, screw it, I'm just this is garbage, but I'm still going. Well, I guess it was really this novel where I practiced that for the first time. Um, and like I said, it felt like I was channeling something. So there was like some sense of urgency that I felt physically where I was like, I know the end, I know a couple of like key things the characters have to do along the way. And I just need to get to that end and nothing else matters. That was what carried me forward. Yeah. You know, it's, it's really interesting. Like it, it, this is mirroring kind of some stuff that I've been working with in my own writing process where I have realized that, that having, I mean, it's such a dumb thing to say, you feel like this advice is everywhere, but like breaking things down into these very small goals where I can say, I know that endpoint really does change the total energy of the, even if it's just like, okay, well, this chapter ends this way and I need to get to that point. And then you, I don't know, there's something about it because the problem that that I've had before is sometimes I can be very... I can be very rigid and very disciplined and just like, okay, well, you just need to freaking sit here and write something and, 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 and that's good. That's good. But it sometimes means that I haven't actually thought about what I'm writing. And so I think taking more time to just kind of sit and think about what is happening the way that it sounds like you kind of did accidentally, maybe when, when you were resisting putting the book to paper for the first time. Um, I think it does let you approach with that kind of energy that that is a little bit more um yeah urgent or just sort of focused yeah I think there is a greater sense of authority to writing that comes about when the writer knows what the end place is and to be clear right I'm not advocating for always sticking to your end game because then the work becomes sort of stagnant and dead on the page but yeah I think just like having a sense of moving towards something is important and also um I do deeply believe in sort of boom and bust cycles for writing. You know, I used to joke that I'm sitting here playing games on my phone and that's writing. And I'm like dicking around and watching Netflix and that's writing. But all those things are writing. And I think it is really, really, really important to step away from the page sometimes, even for very long stretches of time, like months, maybe even years for some people. um, And let the ideas, the thoughts, the feelings kind of build up. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard that and, and often kind of thought it was BS. And then, but I, I think it is very true. Or, you know, like similar to what you're saying, like, oh, yeah, Netflix counts, this counts, you know, but like, you do, you do need to acknowledge the full spectrum of the process and not just the part that's typing. <laughs> I mean, what it is, is you do have to live a life to write. And so you're just like collecting experiences of life. Have you joined WMFA's Patreon community yet? Patreon is a digital platform that allows fans to support creators and their work directly. When you become a patron, you pledge a monthly amount of your choosing, and I give you rewards like exclusive writings, notes of creative encouragement, and bonus segments, including a bonus segment from this very episode. That reward, by the way, is just $2 a month. By joining my Patreon community, you're growing the world of WMFA one writer at a time, plus supporting a whole community of independent creatives, from audio editors to graphic designers. And creative community is what WMFA is all about. Join today at patreon.com slash WMFA podcast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash WMFA podcast. Thank you for supporting the show.
I want to double back a little bit, if you don't mind, because now I'm, I'm just flipping through the book. And I, I had wanted to ask you um, a little bit about the the chapter headings and the well, my first question was really about the significance of plums, um, which come up a lot in the book in a lot of different ways with a lot of different positive and negative connotations. Um, that kind of leads us into the structure of the book because, you know, it, it's divided into four parts and each chapter it kind of alternates between these very, these very short, very kind of it's gold, plum, salt, skull, wind, mud, meat, water, blood, and it kind of continues on. So it, it, it kind of going back to that visceralness, you know, it's this very, it's this very physical kind of very, very, yeah, visceral is just the word I keep using. So I don't know why I'm dancing around it. But um, can you can you talk a little bit about what those symbols sort of what they what they do for you in this book? Those symbols came about in a, a couple of drafts into the book. Um, they weren't there at first. I think I first placed them there with the intention that maybe I would just take them out again later. What I really wanted was to have almost like a thematic motif for each chapter that allowed me to sharpen it. Like I'm like, if plum is sort of my North Star in whatever way I interpret it in this chapter, it will become less baggy. I will sort of shape the chapter in some way around that. Um, and so it was really an editing tool at first. And then I really liked them and I started to see how I could repeat these chapter titles through each section of the book because it really goes back to those themes of intergenerational trauma and shared trauma in a family that I wanted to explore. Yeah, that that's really interesting. Um, a thing that I've been interested in about you know, certainly in my research in Appalachia, this idea has come up, um, although it's not specific to Appalachia by any means, but but this concept of generational memory and sort of like what what you're born with that you haven't directly experienced, but, mm. you know, and, and it's across species, right? Like, I, th I think it's elephants, like, know certain spots that, like, they haven't been to, but they're, but it's in the DNA of kind of like, their family. I think crows have something like this as well. Um, yeah. So, so this idea of inter of intergenerational trauma and and how it reverberates and kind of shape shifts is very interesting. Yeah. I mean, oh God, <laughs> I'm going to show myself and demonstrate my lack of knowledge in actual science. But right, it has been proven out recently, <laughs> right? The the science of epigenetics, which is that lived experiences in your lifetime actually do change your DNA and can therefore be passed down to mm -hmm. your children. Um, mm -hmm. But I think the other thing about, um, you said something about generational memory, and I think that's really interesting in relation mm -hmm. to this book because one of the traumas of the family in this novel is that they lack generational memory, right? Um, and I think this is true for mm. a lot of immigrants where you are literally cut off from one culture and the generation that is bridging that gap, in this case, like the, the parents who make the move, maybe they can attempt to bring some aspects of the old culture to the new culture. They can do their best to preserve, but there is a schism. And that's really, really fascinating to me. Right, yeah, that idea of just like how on the one hand, it is so visceral and it's so deeply felt, but it's also kind of impossible to express and explain like like within that, you know, from one generation to the next with words. Yes, exactly. So I think it does go back maybe to that visceralness. It's like you can 
you know, sometimes, um, especially with people that you're close to and emotionally attuned to, you can just like walk into a room and you can feel that they're sad or happy or something has happened to them, right? Um, uh-huh. And that precedes words. And in the case of this family, I think that feeling and that sense in many cases takes the place of words. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Similarly, um, there was this moment that I loved and I I'm a very like, I'm a very note taking, dog earing, very physical reader. So I can tell you that's exactly on page 129. Um, Ba is trying to tell them, trying to tell Lucy and Sam kind of like the word that applies to them, right? And because one of them uses a slur and and he says, you know, and and he's trying to kind of convey this, um, the, the sort of Mm-hmm. better <laughs> obviously the better but you know the 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 kind of word that they have ownership over that they can kind of use to reclaim that idea and um but you don't write it which i love and there there's another moment like that i believe but i'm blanking and and so i could be wrong about that but i think there I, there were a couple moments like that that i saw as this kind of sacredness that you were keeping for them that like they get to just have this to themselves and i don't know if that was if that was it or if that was just my reading of it but i i really loved that that you just write he tells them and then you don't you know, you don't get into it. No, it feels absolutely right. Thank you for noting that. I loved the the word sacred to refer to that because it does feel that way to me. Like in some way, there's always the question of who a book is written for. And in this case, it definitely wasn't written for the reader. Uh, It definitely, and it particularly wasn't written for, you know, uh, a white American audience. Um, I really think in some way I wrote it for the family within the book. And by extension, sort of like for a lot of Asian immigrants, um, it did feel important to me that the family kept some of its own sacred space. Yeah, yeah. And and similarly, you know, I love there are a lot of Chinese phrases pre- peppered in and I spent, you know, a lot of a lot of my uh, reading was like Google translating and, and seeing and I and I love that, too, that it's not you know, going to that question of who's it for, it's like, I'm, I'm not going to translate this for you. Like, you, you either choose to ignore it, or you choose to uh, try to understand it. Wait, that's amazing that you use Google Translate. I definitely thought there would be people who would see the, the Mandarin in it and be like, fuck this, I hate this book. But I actually didn't anticipate people like you who would just go and do the work. <laughs> How did you come to writing? Have you always have you always written since you were a kid? Um, yes, I have always written. I made a bunch of really bad, I suppose now we would call them chat books when I was like five or six, where I would just like staple shit together and draw and write on the pages. So I, I have always been compelled to write. You have a lot of, you have a lot of short fiction and you have some, some kind of flash fiction as well. Do you, do you feel across all of these forms like you, you feel most akin to a, a specific one? I think it's hard to say because I feel like I'm still such a novice or still learning so much about writing, which I don't suppose that feeling ever goes away. Um, I will say that I feel that writing this novel sort of changed my brain in some way where I am no longer capable mm. of writing very short fiction. Um, I think the last short story I wrote after finishing this novel was something like 7,000 words. and. <laughs> Um, it's kind of interesting to look back on my own writing and see, wow, I was able to produce 200 word stories. Who would have thunk? Yeah. So I, I honestly don't know. I think that's kind of exciting to not know. Um, what are you working on now? If you, if you can say. 
I'm a little bit superstitious, but I feel like I'm now deep enough in the project to say, I think I'm working on another book. Uh-huh. And that's that's all I can say about the book right now. But what is interesting to me is this is actually the second book I've attempted to write after How Much of These Hills is Gold. Uh-huh. And the fourth book I've attempted to write in my life. So before How Much of These Hills is Gold, there was a drawer novel, a novel that was absolutely not fit for the public eye. Um, and after How Much of These Hills is Gold, I wrote another of those. <laughs> <laughs> and now I guess maybe I'll just be in every other book will see the light of day writer. I hope not. I hope not too, but I, I know what you mean. That makes me think of that, that great Alexander Chi essay where he says that his first novel wasn't the first novel he started, but it was the first novel he finished. Yeah, I think a lot of people are holding on to secret bad books, and I just wish that they weren't so secret. (laughs) Um, Well, that's part of what I I try to do with these conversations, too, is like, I really, it's so freeing for us all to be like, oh, this part of it is miserable for me, too, or I feel bad at this part, too. Like, I think all of that is very, (laughs) is very liberating. Right. It's like the most common joke that is also the truth that writers have other writer friends not to edit their work or or do like fancy craftings, but just to complain and totally. have other people be like, yes, I, I feel awful all the time, too. <laughs> right, one, of, one of the people that really sort of like uh, demonstrated showing off the bad parts of writing to me was Lauren Groff. I took a workshop with her at Breadloaf a couple of years ago, and she started off the entire workshop by talking about a manuscript that she had thrown away and that she had experienced great pain over throwing it away. And I just really loved that idea of starting out a conversation with writers with this note of emotional vulnerability because, um, you know, now having gone almost all the way through the publication process. I realized that we are all very hard on ourselves and even I'm ridiculously hard on myself for now that I'm working on this new book, which is obviously in these like ugly, nascent, awkward stages. Okay. I'm like, oh my God, why isn't this book as good as the one I am about to put out that went through like 15 drafts, was edited right. by an editor for two years. I'm like, what is wrong with me that I'm, I'm punishing myself for this and that we're all sort of like experiencing this shared amnesia. Amnesia is a great word for it. And I think too, like, you know, it's, it's so important, but so difficult to remember that like, it's, it isn't, it isn't a cumulative process. You do learn more, but also like you take on new projects and they don't necessarily have the same rules. Yes, absolutely. I, yeah, I don't know how much you learn from project to project. (laughs) (laughs) One of my, in that same spirit, actually, like one of my favorite, um, I, I interviewed a, a wonderful Appalachian writer, Silas House, on the show um, a year or two ago. And he's written, I don't know, I think he was on talking about his like seventh book. And he was like, honestly, it's gotten harder for me. And like, it was just so refreshing to hear that. And just, you know, it's a little bit depressing on one hand, <laughs> like you have to steal yourself from <laughs> no. that. But like, that idea of just like, yeah, it's not like a cakewalk for the folks that you assume that it's a cakewalk for. But I love that because I think that it becoming harder as you go along may actually be symptomatic of your, you're having higher and higher standards. Absolutely. For yourself, right. 
Yes. I can't remember now who it was, but I recently read sort of like a critic's retrospective of, of a writer near the end of their life. And I can't remember the writer. I'm truly not holding it back. I just mm-hmm. can't remember who the writer was. But there was this devastating note where the critic talked about how this writer had continued writing the same kind of books. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't that they were bad books, but at some point the writer had stagnated. And in right. some in some ways, I think that's like my greatest fear. Like, oh God, I hope no no one can ever say that about me. Right, right. Well, actually, that transitions really wonderfully into the last question that I always like to ask folks uh, when we when we wrap up our conversation, which is kind of the flip side of that, um, which is what does creative satisfaction look like for you right now? Mm, that's such a hard question. I think it's just writing and feeling that what I'm writing is a lie. It's really that simple. Um, and I do think that too engage in that feeling of aliveness that has to feel sort of all-consuming you know that moment when you're in the flow mm-hmm. and you feel that what's coming out of your fingertips is magic even though it may be very ugly and need to be edited later on you feel that magic um and it's been harder for me to enter that flow these days because there is so much else about book promotion and the end of the publishing process that drags you in the other direction I wish I had more of those moments when I forget about the rest of the world. All right. Well, congratulations again on this beautiful book. Thank you so much for the wonderful conversation. Um, I managed to listen to one and a half episodes of the podcast, but I have a bunch of the other ones queued up. So, Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at WMFAPodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review on iTunes to help new listeners find the show. Have a question or author recommendation? Email me at hello at wmfapodcast.com. Find me on Twitter and Instagram at cfballastier or leave a voicemail at 347-685-4836. Today's episode was edited by Andy Cubis. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is part of the Lit Hub Radio Network and is made in Pittsburgh by Courtney Ballastier, LLC. All rights reserved.